Thank you, Amber. I kind of forgot I had to do announcements. I was just listening to the music. But, uh, I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And it's such a privilege and a blessing to worship together. So I could go on and on and on, but then I would just go on and on and on. A few announcements. We have Fall Fellowship at the Nelson's Reformation Farms. If you have not RSVP'd, church, it's not a sin to RSVP. Okay? Um, it helps us out, so please, RSVP. Um, otherwise, you will miss out, and you won't have a chair or food, and you'll just have to watch everybody else having a wonderful time. Uh, but please, let them know so they can prepare we have youth choir practice directly after church. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. I try to be nice to them so they invite me to sing in the choir, but it hasn't worked. And then one last order is uh, just announcing that we have a business meeting coming up. You'll have a budget ahead of time uh, and ask any questions on it. We will be redoing some things to make the budget and the whole process better. It's a work in progress. Preparation for our worship, too, I'd like to read a couple of passages that came to my mind, particularly in light of, and I heard some reports from some of our folks as well, on the concerns about uh, the latest um, terrorist attack with our friends in, uh, in Israel. It just reminds us of um, the conflict of, of mankind in rebellion ultimately against God. Psalm 122, but just to put it in perspective, Psalm 122, I'm reminded, it says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. I want to tell you that's where you're going to find security in, in God and God alone. That's the love. That, that's the expression, the unique relationship that you have with God. And sometimes these events remind us of where our security and safety is. It is in God and God alone. The, the prophet Isaiah told us about the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. You've multiplied the nations, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? And how will all this end? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. That's the hope. And the government, it'll be on his shoulders. And his name should be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and, you know it, Prince of Peace. Of his increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And one final passage at the very close of the book and looking to this day. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth, to him, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming. He's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I want to give you a moment now privately to, to think on these things as I'll pray for us in just a few minutes corporately, but take a moment, prepare your heart to worship this one, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we've gathered together as your people to praise your holy name. Think of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world and nations that are under great conflict. And pray that they will look to the one in whom they may find refuge. I pray that you would even use the things that are going on to, to bring about a recognition that there is indeed safety only and refuge only in you and you alone. Pray that, that our confidence would not be in the flesh, but in you. That we might be affixed even in a greater way. The realities that um, might face us from day to day. We're thankful for the peace that you have granted to us here. That we can gather freely, worship in your holy name. That we can speak those things that are true and right without um, concern about uh, a reprisal from governmental entities or outside forces. It is all because of your goodness and grace, and so we praise you, Holy Father, for that indeed. And we look forward to, to a day when Christ will come, the Prince of Peace, mighty God. And so I pray that you'll give us 
courage in, in these days to, to stand for the truth, to proclaim the truth, but to trust you in all things and recognize that even in our times of greatest weakness, whether we're fighting against failure or disease or, or even some potential destructive acts like that go across our, our land and the world today, I pray, Father, that we will recognize that we have strength and strength in you alone. I pray that you'll bring many to confess indeed that Jesus is Lord and even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our hymn books and let's stand together as we begin our corporate worship with number 386, Brethren, We Have Met to Worship. We'll have women sing verse 2 only and men sing verse 3. We'll all sing together verses 1 and 4. So women only on verse 2, men on verse 3, and then all together on 1 and 4. 386.
ask the elders to come on up. And if you don't have a worship folder, we ran out. No, I don't know. We might have a few back there. You'll need this in a minute. We're going to read uh, this church covenant together. And so if you don't have one, you can raise your hand. Andy might give up his. He's got it memorized, so he's good with that. Um, we have the Cochran family, Jess and Brant, but Jess is not feeling well. But you can come on up here, and if you don't mind, we can embarrass you then. And she didn't want to be at Angela Soul. Uh, you'll come up as well. Elders uh, will be praying for you in just a moment. And Andy, if you would pray for these new members, you guys come on up here, introduce you to the church. The process that we go through on membership, I, I told them we have a... Um, we have, a, we have a narrow front door, so we, we have a double, but we keep one of them closed. Now, uh, what we try to do, really, is to talk to all people who want to be a part. Christ has called us to be in fellowship and in membership with one another. We are the body of Christ, and that is significantly important. But we want to make sure that they are genuinely in Christ, and we ask for you to give your testimony to share that. We discuss uh, how we practice here and, and things, and, and you agree to support and submit and do everything I say. No, you, to, to follow Christ, right, and uh, be in that regard. You were checking to see if that was true. Yeah, I get you. Um, in any case, uh, we go through a class and, and go through some things on that and talk about some issues and, and also about your commitment and confession of Christ in believer's baptism, which demonstrates in a pictorial sense, we'll be talking about the picture of the tabernacle today, but the baptism pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we do so here as a Baptist church uh, upon your profession of faith, and we enjoy hearing the testimony of how you come to Christ. And Brent, you gave us a beautiful testimony and a great picture of that in, uh, in believer's baptism. And we want to give you this to, as a memento to keep up with that record and, um, and so forth. And I've already given you a theology book as well, welcome you as a new member. And I guess your wife is at home reading that now. Okay, <laughs> it's big one. Uh, you've got it down pat. Okay, that's good. And Angela, I wanted to give you one as well. You didn't know this, but this is part of the requirement. When you get done reading it, let me know. No, this, this just helps. Yeah, we're going to take another test, that's for sure. Uh, no, uh, we just want to give you that gift and, and really just welcome you both to the membership. Uh, the church, uh, we, the elders uh, counsel and review and ask, and they're able to ask questions. We do as well. And then we present to the church for membership, and the church has voted them in. And today is just a presentation, so you've already passed the bar. We're good. And in that presentation, one of the documents we go through is our church covenant. And what we try to do by going through this is really try to express uh, who we are. This is well-worded. We, we, uh, we took it from another church. They, they gave it to us and modified it just slightly. Um, in any case, but I think it really does a good job in trying to summarize what we're trying to do as a church together. 
Now, one of the most difficult things is just reading through this because I have trouble reading through it because I try to catch my breath. But I'd like for us to try to read this together. And if you're not a member here, uh, you can participate with us in solidarity of the subject itself. So I ask you to read as well. You're not making this commitment. You're recognizing the commitment that these have made and that those of us who are indeed members of this local body have made. So I encourage you to, to do that and think through what is actually being said here, because it, again, I think it communicates uh, really well what we're trying to do as a body of Christ. So let's, church, let's read this together with our new members. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, nor to elect credit for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as at any time may be under our care, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, by a pure and loving example, receives the salvation of her family and friends. We will rejoice in each other's happiness, and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek, by divine aid, to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again in solid grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a holy We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. We will, if we move from this place as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. I think at the next business meeting, I'm going to put a motion forth that we change GRBC to Grace Reformed Breathless Church. <laughs> Just have to read it a little slower, but that's all right. Yeah. Okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your blessing on this church, yes. the unity we have, the love 
for Jesus Christ and for each other that yes. you've placed in our heart. And I thank you for Jesse and Brant and Angela, brothers and sisters, that you have led them to partner with us. Mm -hmm. And I pray that they would find a place of ministry, of service, of comfort, of family, friendships, and safety as they stay with us. May the Cochran's little ones grow up in the nurture and admonition yes. of the Lord and be powerful yes. for Jesus Christ. I ask your blessing upon both families that they would worship you with us until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Welcome. Amen. Let's take our hymn books again and let's stand together and turn to number 136. We're going to sing, Oh, 4,000 Tongues to Sing, and then Amber will transition us right into 137 on the other side of the page there. And so we'll sing both one after another with a, a little interlude from Amber. From, so starting off at 136 and then moving to 137. Oh, 4,000 Tongues to Sing, and my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praise all day long. Psalm 34.
morning, church. I get to read Acts 18, 18 through 28. That's at page 927 in your pew Bible. Um, I feel like every single time I read one of these, the, the thing that pops out to me is, is the same, and that is seeing how God works sovereignly through people and situations in a way that anybody else would look at those situations and say, Wow, I can't believe that happened. All these different things had to coincidentally line up for that to happen. But we know that it wasn't a coincidence. We know that it was God's providence. And this is a particularly fascinating passage. It is, in a way, it's, uh, for the the children who are still in here, it is a sort of superhero origin story. And um, there's many things you can pull from this, but it, it... it introduces us to a character named Apollos. And by way of context and also um, understanding who this person will become uh, and also understanding a proper view of how to view him, um, I want to read a little bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There are many things to admire about this character, Apollos. Clearly, he's viewed by many as being on par with Paul. Um, he is a great man of God. But this is his origin story. Acts eighteen, eighteen. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for, for Syria. With him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, them being Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Before I read the last four verses, I want to say the other thing that struck me from this passage was um, the reaction, as you will see, of Priscilla and Aquila. God placed them in a very specific place, very providentially, to speak to Apollos, as you will see. Apollos is a great man. 
Um, he was competent in the scriptures. Some translations say mighty in the scriptures. That is the Old Testament. But this passage clearly indicates that he was lacking something. It says that he, was, that he taught accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. John MacArthur says, Apollos knew the baptism of anticipation, not the baptism of accomplishment. But God uses Priscilla and Aquila to complete Apollos' understanding. And they are a model for us in that. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for showing us how you worked sovereignly through human events, through individual persons, to accomplish your will. Thank you that you brought Priscilla and Aquila out of Italy at just the right time to meet with Paul, that they stayed with him for over a year in Corinth, that they went with him to Ephesus and, and providentially stayed behind so that they could speak this necessary word to Apollos, who then would go on to water what Paul had planted. Let us admire these men to the extent that they mirror you. Let us model these men to the extent that they model you. I pray that you will help each of us to be mighty in the scriptures and to trust in your providence. Use us as you did Priscilla and Aquila to speak a necessary word into the hearts of those who need it with love and care and compassion to the end that your word would go forward, that your kingdom would be advanced here on earth, and that ultimately your name would be glorified. We thank you for this church, for a pastor who is dedicated to rightly dividing the word of truth. We pray that you will bless him this morning, give him the words to speak, bless us, bless our ears to hear, and bless this offering. May it be multiplied and used to support the furtherance of your kingdom on this earth. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, please stand once more and take your hymn books and turn to number 511. 511, the solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amber and church, and indeed, I pray that is your testimony as well. You'll be standing on Christ and Christ alone. We're going to get a picture or a portrait, if you will, of Christ. This is the second part from Hebrews chapter 9. I invite you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 9. It talks about the tabernacle here. The tabernacle is really a portrait or a picture of Jesus Christ. The symbols of the Old Covenant found in the Old Testament paint a beautiful picture of this one who is Jesus Christ our Lord. If you haven't been with us or haven't been with us in a while, let me just remind you where we're at in the book of Hebrews. It's essentially, as I see it, a sermon. It's a sermon that has been written down and refined a bit, no doubt. But it is an exemplar of first century preaching. The kind that really Apollos, as we've learned and heard about, might have preached as well. This is likely Paul, but we don't know that for 100%. But nevertheless, this is the structure of of what kind of preaching might have gone along. As uh, Ethan read... He was mighty in the scriptures. That was Apollos. 
That is, he, he knew God's word. And God's word points to Jesus Christ. It points to the Messiah. How would they get that? Well, from reading the scriptures, and particularly we'll focus today on this portrait from the description of the tabernacle. The preacher in Hebrews, his objective here is to speak about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. And he begins that way by focusing first on his person, that is, he is God, God incarnate, the creator and sustainer of the world. This is not just any prophet, this is the prophet. This is not just any sovereign, it is the king, and it is, in, and what he'll weave throughout his book more than any other book is that this sovereign king, this God incarnate, this one who speaks with authority, is also a mediator. A mediator between God and man. And somebody we would need, we call that a priest. That's introduced in its formal way in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, he gets into the concept of what this priest brings and that is the fulfillment of a promise. We call it the, the new covenant. It was talked about in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, the prophet, talked about it. And here it is in chapter 8 as well. Now we shift to a new chapter here, chapter 9. And, and, he, and it seems almost like he's going back to these Hebrews who he's speaking to and telling them not to go back to Judaism because Christ has fulfilled it all, but yet he points back to Judaism and really then gives us the, the purpose of it here. The point and the purpose, one of the major things, is essentially to lay a foundation for Jesus Christ who would come. It is indeed, and it still uh, remains, a, a picture that points to Jesus Christ. Notice, if you're in the book of Hebrews now, look at verse 9, as this first section closes. In verse 9, it says, these things are what? A symbolic for the present age. That's the point of those rituals. They were symbols. These details that were prescribed by God functions as a picture of Christ. I'm reminded of Jesus explaining this in many of his post-resurrection experiences, actually to his disciples directly. He, he would tell them directly, but one of the interesting ones to me is the, on the road to Emmaus. This is after his resurrection. There's a couple of guys going out of Jerusalem and and they were all excited about the Christ. That's the official term here for the Messiah, who is Jesus. They were excited. They, they thought he would come. And remember this passage I read in Isaiah earlier, that, that, that all, he would be over all dominion and all authority, that he is indeed the, the Prince of Peace, Almighty God. They're, they're looking for this kind of deliverance, if you will. And they were quite discouraged because... Jesus Christ died a bloody and awful death on the cross. 
And at this point, now all hope is, is lost from their perspective. They, 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 they knew that, that what Christ was going to do, he was going to be a king. He was going to be a sovereign. But they forgot to read about the parts where it says he was also going to be a sacrifice. A necessary one to atone for sin, and that's what we'll talk about today. It, it is required. And Christ would fill that aspect as well. And just as surely as he died on the cross, he surely will return to sit on the throne. The book of Hebrews opens up and says that is where he is now, on the very throne of God. And he will come, and he will come soon. On these, I'll just read a, a little selection. You can look it up later, but from Luke 24, as Luke records us for us Jesus Christ's own personal explanation of the old covenant of the old testament he says in verse 26 of 24 in Luke you can listen was it not necessary that the Christ that's the Messiah that's who Jesus is they're discouraged is was it not necessary that is, hasn't it been prophesied about, written about, that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into glory? And so, verse 27 of Luke 24, then beginning with Moses, so covenant, and then all of the prophets, he interpreted, that is, he explained to them all the scriptures concerning himself. It was there all the time. They just didn't see it. You see, you are not going to see it either unless a supernatural divine experience where the Spirit enlightens your heart to be able to see it. And Beloved, if you have come to Christ and been regenerate and then you see it, 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 is, it will be absolutely overwhelming to you. Here's how these guys on the road to Emmaus thinks about that experience with Christ as he actually takes the Old Testament scriptures and shows them about the Christ. They reflect on it this way in verse 30 of Luke 24. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. You've seen that before, haven't you? And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And here's their response. They said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened up the Scripture? Beloved, you, 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 will, you will need a, a, a work of the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to have this experience, to, to truly be regenerate and to truly be illuminated, enlightened, if you will, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it comes mediated through his word right here. And this is why we read it. This is why we sing it. This is why we think about it. This is why we pray it, and this is why we proclaim it. We don't practice this ritual of the Old Covenant anymore. You can 
see that as chapter 8 closes. As the preacher says, this, this old covenant is, is obsolete because there's a new one. This old one is, is becoming, it's, it's ready to vanish away. And, and in the time in which this sermon was originally given, Jerusalem would be sacked. It would be destroyed and the temple with it. And none of those rituals have ever or could ever be practiced again in the way that they were. There's a new covenant. It's in Christ. But this old one speaks of the new. And if you see it, you're like these guys on the road to Emmaus. Your heart might burn while we open the scriptures and look at it. And that is my prayer. But I do want to give you another warning here as we open up the scriptures and look at these concepts again. And just kind of a word of caution in what to do with this. So that you don't get carried away with the concepts of the Old Covenant. And particularly the tabernacle in all the details that are given. And there are a lot. I think there's close to 50 chapters on it. It's a lot. A lot of information. And I'll just read a couple little selections. But you may want to spend some time and read the book of Exodus and, and, and go through it and think through it. But as you do so, I, I just would give this word of caution to don't press it further than it needs to be pressed as far as the the illustration of these objects and the very details. If you, you look at a masterpiece portrait, a painting, and you got real close, you're going to see the pigment that makes up that portrait. You may even also notice the brushstrokes that put the pigment on the canvas to begin with. May, maybe you even see some details of the canvas, and, and we can go on. But that really isn't the main point. It's to see the picture, isn't it? Th there's a greater glory. And so another cliche is don't miss the forest for the trees. Okay? That's kind of the, what we would call the art and science of biblical interpretation. There, there is a bit of an art to it. I think every detail is absolutely important. I'm not suggesting it's not. It's just that you've um, you got to be careful that, you're, that you don't impose your own biases and assumptions into the text because you want to point to the glory of Christ. We, we would call that eisegesis or reading into as opposed to exegesis, reading out of. Our... our our point here is to look for the author's intent. And one of the best ways to do it is to see how the New Testament writers who are inspired by God saw all of these and how they explained it. You're on solid ground in that case. The Jews, and, and really uh, at this time and, and since, beyond, beyond that, Jesus certainly addressed them. They had a tendency to take all of these details, which they had a lot, and, and press them way too far. They came up with an interpretive model called Midrash, 
they have these commentaries on the scriptures and almost they become the authoritative source depending who said something about what. Jesus addressed them. You read it in the Gospels. He called their ideas the tradition of men, you see. You can take the truth and, and, you, and you can manipulate it to a point to, to make it mean what you want to, to mean. God's word is what he meant and what he determined for it to mean. Jesus is the point of the story. And if it doesn't lead there, maybe you've gone on the wrong direction. And a lot of people do that. I'm not trying to be overly critical on that. The, the, the story weaves itself together from Genesis to Revelation and talks ultimately about the glory of God, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, who by his grace redeems a people for his name, makes them a kingdom of priests for God, for God's glory. That, that's what the big picture is, is about. Some people look at this book and, and see a lot of good ideas, ways for success, and ways for to construct your life in a moral way. All of that's good, but that is not primarily what it's about, good morals and virtues. I appreciate Jordan Peterson's respect for the scriptures. I really do. Uh, but I don't advise his teaching series on the Bible. You know why mainly? He, he gets a lot of stuff good and right, but he misses the point. That's the point. The point is Jesus Christ. The point is redemption. It, it, it isn't, and I would call this, and, and I don't mean to belittle him again, I, I, my intellect doesn't, uh, wouldn't compare like a thimble to an ocean in in that, but respect, but but you, you can be the the brightest person in the world and be, still be in darkness. It's going to take a supernatural revelation, and and not many wise and not many might here called see First Corinthians. Some are for sure, but not all. God often uses the very weak. You know why? Because He can show how strong He is in spite of how dumb that person might be. I can identify with that. This book isn't a book that's primarily about the moral of the story. Nor is it mythology just written out in a weird way. The, the, the genre of the scripture is not like that at all. The, New, the Old Testament and all of the scriptures are written one for one main reason on a practical basis for you and me. It's to point to Jesus Christ. And don't take my word for it. Let's talk. Let me give you the word of an, an apostle, John. As he closes out his book, do you remember what he said in John 20, 31? I'll read it for you. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This life that he's talking about isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. If you're not in Christ, you're in great judgment. 
and you need to get out of that judgment. But it is much more than that. The life that he's talking about is not just a, a life at some other point in time, in some future, it is right now. That's what he's talking about. And that's what this is written from cover to cover. That you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. Well, let's look at the text here, and I'll look at the first ten verses of Hebrews chapter 9. As he, preacher, dips back into these objects of the tabernacle in which the audience in which he was talking to was very familiar. We'll need to be reminded of a few things. They would have been very familiar. So let's look at that as he paints then a picture of Christ from the, temp, the tabernacle. Verse 1, Now even as the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, and that's key, the holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which there was a lampstand and the table of bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the altar, golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that the budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes. But he wants a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. By the way, it's not standing anymore. Which is symbolic then for the present age, which is now, which is it's not standing anymore. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. Let us pray. O oh, Father, I pray that we would indeed get a glimpse of your glory from your word, from this portrait of Christ in the tabernacle. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Notice in verse 2, it says a tent was prepared. We talked about that last time. It, that is the earthly place of holiness. That's the end of verse 1. They're tied together. This tent was prepared. This, he's talking about the bigger tent. We, we introduced that last time. And if, you're, uh, if your uh, sons or daughters are taking notes, as some of the kids do, I, I would invite you to draw a rectangle, if you will, and then inside that, another one. And then inside of that one, a little square. And if you have trouble with it, your parents can help you at home. 
to explain it. That gives you a diagram of this tent. And, and the tent proper on the outside was essentially just, we might think of it as a fence or, or, or a wall uh, surrounding the whole thing. We, we talked about that. that. That is the place that, uh, that marked out symbolically a, an area of holiness in which God symbolically dwells with his people. By the way, th- this was temporary, this tabernacle. It sp- is specifically addressed here by the preacher of Hebrews because he's talking about a time between their uh, freedom from bondage, which represents sin in Egypt. The tabernacle was with them for those days that they were in the wilderness journey, and they were going to go where? To the promised land. I think you get the big picture of what these things are portraying. So as they're wandering about in the wilderness, as you might be wandering about as a pilgrim and a sojourner in this life, and experiencing all kinds of difficulty and all kinds of trouble, God is with his people. That's the point. God was in the midst of his people. And to remind them of that, they they made this, as God instructed them, a specific tent to be with him. He was with his people. It had a barrier around it, if you will, this wall, seven and a half feet roughly high, the tent wall, on the outside, you, you just couldn't stumble in it, right? It, marking out again, as the preacher of Hebrews says, his holiness. God is separate. And it's marked that way for us to be able to picture it and understand that. There is a way into his presence, if you will. They constructed, as we talked about last week, there's a, there's a gate, There's an entranceway. It was sufficiently large enough to accommodate all who wanted to come in. It was the door to God. It is the way. Jesus calls out in Matthew 11, all who who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He just says, come, come to me. And in Revelation, it ends this way. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Here is an open invitation. Do you hear? You will, because the Father has given all who will come, John 6, 37. And Jesus says, he who comes, I will not cast out. That's why you can't, quote, unquote, lose your salvation. You didn't find it to begin with. He found you from the foundation of the world. It's it's more marvelous than you could ever possibly imagine. But the call is to simply come, to come to Christ. It's an open invitation. So let's say you have come. You heard his voice. 
and you have come. And symbolically here in this tabernacle, as I've laid it out, a rectangle-shaped, might think of it like a, a barrier, a fence, these curtains, beautiful linen curtains, sturdy, held up, and then this gate in which you can enter and you enter in. What are you going to see? In that courtyard, before you get into the tents with inside the tent, we would call it the holy place and most holy place, before you get inside of those, you're on the outside and, and there's no ceiling. It's just open. Think of it as a courtyard. And there's two things in that courtyard. One is an altar, and the other is what we call a laver. The altar is a place where sacrifices were done, and the laver is full of water for cleansing. And they're in that order. When you first come in, you're drawn to this brazen altar first. What's a brazen altar all about? You can turn to, you can keep your finger here if you want. Uh, go to Exodus chapter 27, and I'll just introduce it to you. You may want to read the details later. I have permission not to go too far in detail, because that's the writer, the preacher of Hebrews said, these details we can't quite get into. There's a lot there, but just to whet your appetite, particularly if you're reading through Exodus, here the brazen altar is discussed. Exodus 27, you shall make of the altar an, of a kale wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns on it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Again, as I've mentioned before this stuff is not put together haphazardly it's not left to their own imagination on how they might want to construct it god gave them specific directions specific regulations if you will how to do everything down to the last measurement what it was the materials that it was to be built about of and the materials that were overlaid on it God is intentional about all of this. But what's, what's all the brush strokes, if you will, and the pigment? What, what does it, it point to? This object is there, carefully constructed, no doubt, but it is there to make propitiation for sin. The, the horns on it, by the way, were there to secure a sacrifice that would be slain on that altar. It would be awful what went on on that altar. And if you saw it or I saw it, we might have to turn away. It wasn't lovely, but it was necessary. It was a necessary object there to provide propitiation for sin. What does propitiation mean? It's a big word, theological word, that, word that's biblical, 
and that, well, we need to know. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary provides a brief definition. It says, propitiation is the act of appeasing another's anger by offering a gift. I think it's a good definition. Appeasing anger by offering a gift. So you can understand that. you got this altar here. A sacrifice is made. There's some appeasement going on. And that's a good way to think about this big theological word, propitiation. Most people still don't get it. They, they look at this and then misconstrue what's going on. They scratch their head because from the mind to man, well, well, what's going on? And so people make up all kinds of things about this. And the reason is they don't know God. That's the problem. They, they don't know why anyone would need to be appeased or how somebody would be appeased. They just simply don't know God. Pagans and unbelievers would attempt to, particularly we've read historically, appease the quote-unquote gods, maybe the god of, 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 of weather, you know, the, the god of water, the god of fire. They, they imagine God in different ways because of powerful things. In their heart, they know there is God. They don't know there is only one God, and they don't know who he is. So in their, their own mind, they come up with ideas because they know that something is angry with them. Something is always falling apart. There is always conflict going on. So, so what is going on that's disturbing all the peace? Maybe God's just mad at us and so we'll do something to make him happy, to appease him, that is anger vindictively might be put on something else instead of us. Well, they have a couple elements, kind of right, but they don't see the picture, and they miss the whole thing. And some people, they, they think God is just irrational and vengeful towards them, and, of course, in our modern world, although this still actually goes on now, we talk about a modern world, but let's just say developed world, we might think of it just to give you a category. We think, oh, well, we, we're, we're not out doing sacrifices to appease, you know, a sun god or a wind god or whatever. But we believe in karma. Maybe we believe in religious ritual to the point where we engage in certain religious rituals in a superstitious way, thinking if we counted enough beads or said enough uh, prescriptive prayers that God might not be mad at us anymore. Maybe they think it's just a matter of luck or fate chance. I hope by now you've read enough scripture to know there's no such thing as chance. <laughs> there's God. And he superintends everything. He's in control. He is a sovereign God over all. Now the, the idea of unbelievers, whether ancient or modern, 
they, they miss the idea about this appeasement and, and what it is for and how it is accomplished because they don't know God. The psalmist would say this in Psalm 711, God is a righteous God. That, that's somebody who knows God. God is not irrational. He's not vengeful. He's not angry like you and I might get angry because we get our feelings hurt or something doesn't happen the way we want it to happen. No, that's not God at all. His purposes stand. His counsels stand. But he's righteous. And he makes right and good judgments all the time. And so therefore, as the psalmist would say, a God who feels indignation every day. The indignation refers to God's wrath. It is a righteous response to that which is unrighteous. Our sin has created that lack of peace, that enmity, if you will, with God. And so God, because he is a righteous God, he must act righteously towards that which is not. The payday or the wages of rebellion and sin is death. So we're in trouble because we're sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What do you do? Recognition of that state that condition of condemnation then and feeling the right response of judgment which is is what you 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 deserve you you have broken the law and the law says this and under the old covenant it spelled it out very well if you notice in our text I'll talk about it later but it said the propitiation for uh, that the, the priest was giving uh, sacrifices for unintentional sin. What, 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 what do they do about intentional sin? They killed you. Okay, go read the Old Covenant. Every one of the Ten Commandments say one. You know what the penalty is? Death. You know why? Because the wages of sin is death. And if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. And that puts you in a great problem. There needs to be some sort of appeasement for the judgment that is rightly deserved. That's what we mean by propitiation. You're condemned already. And it should bring about a call then for mercy. Yeah, that's what you need. You don't need justice in, in, in for your own actions. You need mercy. God is just, and he will be just. In Psalm 7, 11, I read that in verse 12, the very next one, it says, well, what happens if a man then doesn't repent? It, it calls for man to repent, but what if they don't? God will wet his sword. He is bent and ready his bow. It's just a matter of time before that judgment is released. The wet sword means, you know, it's sharp. It's ready to bring about judgment. And, and why isn't it executed? Because God's also 
a good, gracious, and patient God and a lot of other attributes about him that are just beyond our imagination. But be assured, a failure to repent means you're condemned already. And you must have that judgment dealt with. God's wrath, as I said, is a righteous response to that which is unrighteous. And so when they walk in and they see this brazen altar, if you will, sacrifices of appeasement means that payment could be made on this symbolic altar, if you will, to picture that the wages of sin, which is death, could be paid. What did they see? Well, they saw animals tied up to the horns on that altar and being absolutely slaughtered. Innocent animals. And in fact, they they had this big prescription. You can read through the details. They knew the details. They, They couldn't have blemish or spot. They had to be represented of something that was absolutely pure and perfect. It wasn't in reality that, for sure. But, but it's picturing that. That's the point. And what went on there was brutal and ghastly. It was bloody. So bad you wouldn't want kids to see it. And you wouldn't want to see it either. I've never watched The Passion of Christ, although I own a copy of it. I just can't bring myself to do it. I don't want to see a remembrance of that. It hurts too much. And sin, beloved, is awful. You can imagine these poor little kids taking that perfect little land and then seeing its throat slit. You don't even want to talk about it, do you? Sin is awful. It pictured Christ. It pictured Christ, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God had planned it all along. If you're in chapter 9, I don't know where I left you off. I told you to put your finger there. We'll get back to it in a minute. But we'll go through this in greater detail later. But we didn't read this yet. But if you continue to read, and I encourage you to do as Christ appears in verse 11. And then it says in verse 12 in Hebrews 9 that he goes into the holy place. That's what he's picturing in this tabernacle. Not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's what it points to. That's what it pictures. That's what it's meant all along. The animals that are sacrificed here in in propitiation, in appeasement, in satisfaction of judgment that is justly due are done in a symbolic way, a vicarious death, if you will, to picture a sinner who repents and Sins then are symbolically atoned for in that, on that 
at, on that altar. Justice demands that payment is in full. But before we leave this, and I know I'm running out of time, I never always do, but ch- turn over to chapter 10 if you're in Hebrews. We'll get to it. See, see the problem is they come here and they get this picture. And, and here it's, it's an animal who didn't do anything. And, and what could animals do, sacrifice? Be- because they weren't actually appeasing God. They weren't actually propitiating sin. It, that was never the point. The point was to picture someone who would. And the preacher of Hebrews reminds us that in chapter 10. He says, but since the law is but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it's not, it's not what is real. It is what is picturing it is the shadow it is not the substance the substance has come it is christ but it 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 serves a point in picturing it but he reminds them that it can never by the same sacrifices that are offered continually year after year make perfect those who draw near that is actually atone for their sin that is actually pay the, the the death penalty if you will all they're invited to come in and draw near, but this ritual can't accomplish it. No ritual can accomplish it. Well, whatever ritual you want to do, well, if it, maybe if I just be uh, uh, really good, th- this would somehow appease God. It isn't, because there's none good, no, not one, because all of your righteous acts are as this filthy rags. There's always. Sin, indwelling sin that remains, and and everything, even the good things that you do, are not perfect. What will it take to dwell with God and be with Him? It will be absolute perfection. And he proves his point. He says, well, if, if, if these things could actually accomplish something, they wouldn't have ceased to be offered. Because since the worshipers, having been, been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But these sacrifices, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder, that's the point, of sins every year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, how in the world, then, it's supposed to be a picture, what's the reality How will your sins be atoned for? How could God's justice be appeased, paid for, accomplished? He gives the answer in verse 12, just drop down. When Christ had offered for a single time, for a, I'm sorry, offered for a time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand hand of God. You remember how Hebrews opens up? I think it's 1-3, something like that. Uh, he he uh, sat down at the very throne of God. In other words, it is finished. That's the point. What, what is he doing? He's waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He's still accomplishing, bringing in, redeeming the people for his name. But you know what? It's done. The atonement is paid for. And by a single offering, verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, 
that that ritual couldn't perfect. Right? Verse 1 of chapter 10. Christ can. And notice this word sanctified here. This idea of sanctification, it is being set apart and it means to be made holy, to be made perfect, if you will, before God. That's what he's talking about. You have this condemnation against you because of your sin. The wages of that is, is death. The payment of that wage is by Christ. And that's what we mean by the appeasement of God. N not, not to give God a little bit of this and that to, to, to make us like him better. This is a matter of that which is right and that which is just. And God just doesn't and can't just sweep that which is wrong unjust and, and not right under the rug like we might try to do. It must be atoned for. And it is done so in Christ, and that is indeed what is pictured. This symbol then that they would see coming in, this sacrifice that is going on, this awful, they could recognize, you know, that's what I deserve. call out in repentance and recognize that God will atone for their sin through the Jesus Christ who is indeed the propitiation for our sin. And the beautiful thing about it in this tabernacle here, it isn't that Christ is just a propitiation for the sins of those Hebrews. It is for the sins of the whole world. That is, non-Jews. They just function as an object lesson. It was through their ethnicity that all of the world would be blessed. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? How, how would all the world be blessed? Through a seed. That's the connection. It's through Christ. 1 John 2.2, 2. that's what it means, and I'll read it for you. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not, only, and not for us only, but for the sins of the whole world. It isn't that all of the sins are atoned for for the world. Some people misunderstand that. If they were, no one would receive judgment. It'd just be over. We didn't even have to preach the gospel. You wouldn't even need this tabernacle. This, this preacher of Hebrews, he, he, what would it matter if, if everybody's sins were paid for? They're not. But anyone whose sin is paid for is paid for through only one sacrifice, and that is through Jesus Christ. And all of that just pictured that. If you're going to dwell with a holy God you'll need to have your sin atoned for Christ made that propitiation 
for all who will come to repentance and faith in him. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute, a perfect Savior. I, I, I pray that these elements would remind us of, again, once again, who Christ is. And for those who, of us who have received propitiation, payment, appeasement for our sin, I pray this would sink deep into our hearts to change the very character of our being. What manner of love has been bestowed upon us is beyond our imagination. We're thankful for the pictures and the, the pointing to this great truth. But I pray, Father, that in our hearts it would be something that would be cherished, not just this day, but in days to come, and call others, many sons and daughters, to the glory of your grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to give you a moment now to think on these things. Uh, take your moment privately. If your sins have not been paid for, propitiated by Christ and Christ alone, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Anyone who is thirsty, come. Come to him now. Take a moment. Father, I do pray that you would grant to us a clear portrait of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and may we stand amazed in your presence with us this day. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm not as familiar with this hymn, are you? So what... So I'll pretend like I like what you were playing better. I forgot to look this one up. And we're, we're, unless your dad wants to come up here and help us out. Uh, what was that one about the lamb you were just playing? To me, that sounds more fitting, you see. Actually, she thought I'd get further along in my sermon. You know what I'm saying? 261. I'm trying to save you guys. 261. Lamb of God, you know, the, the, the verse here is from John 136 where John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God. Um, John the Baptist is this transition from the old to the new. And when he says that, 
that's, that, that's what they're picturing is this very brazen altar in which a sacrifice is made. And then he says, look, there's the Lamb of God. 261, why don't we sing that out if we can? You mind? All right, thanks. Let's stand. 261. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power of working within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You be dismissed. Thank you.